0: Hi, I'm Matt Hoffer, host of the podcast Optimism Always. This is a show where we talk to founders and marketing pros who know firsthand how to create business momentum. On today's episode, we have Drew Glover, founding partner of Fiat Growth, which in my humble opinion, is the best growth marketing company out there. So sit back and enjoy this episode. Dude, thank you for doing this. So my name is Matt Hoffer, uh, chief. I have a new title. New Year, I'm now Chief Momentum Officer uh, at Barrett Hoffer, and uh, we as an agency are on a quest to understand this thing called momentum. So, cut to two years from now, we're going to have a book about brand momentum. Uh, This time next year, we'll have done 13 or 14 of these podcasts. This is the very first one. I'm super excited to invite Drew to the show. I'm going to have him introduce himself in a second. Um, but we are starting this off with a blank slate I do not have the answers I'm going to talk to some of the people in this industry I respect A lot of them will be CMOs, a lot of them will be founders Some of them might be athletes, some of them might be both <laughs> um, And we're going we're gonna to figure it out So, um, But Drew, welcome to the show Introduce yourself Yes,
1: uh, first and foremost, thanks for having me. I feel very honored for being the the first guest. My name is Drew Glover, and I am the founder of Fiat Growth and uh, co-founder and GP at Fiat Ventures. Fiat is two different things. The first thing we are is we are Fiat Growth, the growth consultancy, um, founded around five years ago by myself and my co-founder, Alex Harris, Um, started out with just two of us, co- advising a number of fintech companies and what it's grown into today is a team of 30 plus individuals where we've worked with over 150 companies and driven over a billion dollars in revenue. Uh, When I say growth consultancy, we are not just strategy, but we are also execution. We are a turnkey growth team for early all the way to public companies uh, rooted in the fintech space, but we've really gotten broad. Big believers that fintech is everywhere. We are also fiat ventures. In 2021, we founded our venture fund, and one unique piece of fiat growth is is we ask for the right to invest in every single company we work with. Um, That has turned into around 100 rights to invest. That means that we have the first right of refusal to invest in the next funding round for any company we work with. By working with them on the growth side, we get a wild amount of data to underwrite and understand if this company is investable. So at the end of 2022, we closed our first fund, $25 million fund. We've made 26 investments to date. 60% of those investments are uh, companies that we previously worked with at Fiat Growth. So I just said a lot, let's take a step back. Fiat Growth is our growth consultancy. It's also our due diligence arm for Fiat Ventures. Fiat Ventures is the venture fund where we get to deploy capital into the brands that have the best momentum. There you Um, go. And then we get to lean in and, uh, and be a, Huge investment partner and growth
0: partner with them as they scale to the moon. When you think about someone that you're going to take on, how do, how do you? I'm sure it's a combination of factors, but how do you feel the momentum? Is it is it? What's that first sniff that you get? Like, okay, this is a company I'm interested in. Is it is it the founder? Is it the white space they're in? Is it their is it is it is it the math that you can like kind of in your mind already begin to map it out and say, hey, I understand this business model. I think with a couple quick like take me through like how do you sign someone up so keep in mind we we
1: work with early stage and late stage so on the later stage it does start becoming a little bit more of a math equation okay on the early stage it is a number of different factors um first the most important one is team. team um understanding the founder the founder dynamics understand like the doggedness and the grit that they have yeah uh, early stage is the most vulnerable stage. It's also the one where you are beckoned to the market a lot. So you gotta feel really comfortable that founder or founders have the grit to kind of micro pivot through different market dynamics. You know, yeah. the company you invest in today might not be the company that turns into the billion dollar business because there were shifts that were having happen- that they had to make. The other one is the total addressable market. And this is where like the momentum gets really interesting because I think that there's momentum at every single stage of a company, but it's very dependent on your go-to-market strategy. For example, Airbnb and Uber, they didn't launch to America, they launched in different cities. Yeah. So they got these momentum pops in different cities and then once they got market share in a city, they went to another city and they ran the same momentum train and they built a playbook that, that was very repeatable. And so that's the same for really any businesses instead of launching to a wide market, you want to launch to the market that is most obsessed with your product, most obsessed with your service, get market share there, and then start slowly and methodically scaling over time. Um, So founders and um, the total addressable market, and then last but not least is the product. And a lot of times, you know, the product is, you know—you can get the best developers, you can get the best thought leaders, but the biggest competition with the product is patience and focus. Uh, a lot of times yeah. in the early stage, even at the late stage, everyone's got an idea. Everyone wants to go explore the next thing that comes into their brain. And so a lot of times it's really just making sure that everyone is wildly focused on the product that is solving the biggest problem versus being a moth to a flame and trying to solve like these these edge cases that, you know, might help
0: a little bit, but aren't the real solution. Let me ask you a question. I, I was at an agency, I will not, this is not my current agency, Barrett Hoffer, but it was another agency, and they had not won business in three years. And this is an agency that had won Grand Effies, and they went through a three-year cold patch. And it, it's. I would say it's one of the top ten agencies ever. And I'm like, what is going on? I was new to the team, and we had a new business opportunity come up and I'm like, got everyone in the room and I created this like 10 point scale. Like one was, was it a creative opportunity? One to 10. One was like cash, like one to 10, like we're going to make money. One was credibility, one to 10. And one was care, one to 10. And we went around the room and someone's like, well, you know, I'm not really interested in the category. Someone would be like, well, it it bring a lot of credibility to our story. And we go around and we would have these scores of like a collective seven. And I'm like, guys, this is why we're not winning. like. You gotta have enthusiasm. Tell me about your genuine enthusiasm for fintech. One is is the impact fintech can make. Um, I grew up in Oakland,
1: California, inner city, East Bay. Uh, if if someone lived in another state that just heard about Oakland on the news, they'd be like, "Damn, you're from a rough place." Yeah. Me growing up in Oakland didn't live in the commercially worst part. Didn't live in the best part. Very modest upbringing. Mom was a principal, Oakland Unified School District. Dad ran a nonprofit. I come from a space where I had very unique access and exposure to socioeconomic challenges. Yeah. And so my first four into FinTech was how do I build a career around the thesis of the 80% of America that is most financially challenged needs the most help and it's also the most forgotten when it comes to building financial technology. And um, so I, I believe that impact itself can help lift up the next generation of wealth and how people engage with it and most importantly lowering the access barriers. Historically, you know, financial products and tools, the barriers were so high that you needed to be making a certain amount of money before you can even engage with it. You think about it before Robinhood, like you need to have a money manager to truly go yeah. engage with the stock market. Yeah. There's been a lot of products that have significantly lowered the consumer barrier to financial products. And so really it was generally around that thesis and what I always call it, the North Star that makes it so, you know, you talked about your story of getting caught up on this deal by deal basis, but really always being like, whatever I'm working on in this moment, I'm always looking towards the North Star and making sure I'm chipping away at getting there. I'm also a big believer that FinTech is everywhere. Like what was, you know, 10, 20 years ago, FinTech was a bank. It was where you got your checking and savings account for the majority of people across the globe. What fintech is now, it's a money management tool. It's an investment tool. It's fractional investing. It's investing in, you know, Michael Jordan rookie cards. Like, there's so many different ways to engage with money. Think about saving, think about earning, uh, investing, the whole nine here, where, uh, and also that being embedded into everything. I mean, you go to Lululemon, like, you are transacting at the end of that experience. You're doing the same thing on Amazon. So, um, I also love it that, like, Money makes the world go round and knowing that every action I take, if it's digitally or physically, there is there is a moment where I'm engaging with it. That's my big inspiration around it and why I spend generally like all of my career in it. Because I know that if I know every bit of it, 10 feet deep, a mile wide, I'll understand most things about life. And so that's very inspiring to me and also something that makes me feel comfortable and makes it so I can navigate the world at, on a broader sense because it's
0: embedded into everything. I worked on the um, launch of SoFi. And at the time, this is probably going back, I don't know, maybe, it feels like a while, maybe a decade ago. Anyhow, but I remember at the time just going around the agency and you know, they kind of, when they first came out, it was more about student loans and, uh, I asked people who were at my agency who I thought were well off, like, what's your student loan? And the average amount of student loan my, my employees were carrying, and you're talking about like 28 year olds, was like $120,000. And I was just like shocked. But that got me really excited because now, like, okay, now I have a reason to like go for SoFi. And I remember sitting in a meeting with a guy named Eric Perko, who was head of media, and he talked about branding and the financial. If I have the number right, it was something like $8 billion is spent on branding and marketing for financial institutions. And he actually convinced SoFi and Mike Cagney, the founder, their budget at the time was like seven or eight million, to spend, I think it was 40 million and to do a Super Bowl spot. And it was, in some ways, I give Eric Perko, he had this like bravado and confidence. So when I hear about the SoFi Center and everything that's happened ever since, I'm like, wow, because they. They wanted to make a big dent. So my question for you, because Barrett Hoffer has worked on Chime in the early days, I I, I have good feelings about the Chime brand. Mm-hmm. How important in fintech is branding, and is it different than other categories, or is the importance of brand the same whether it be fintech or Raisin Brand? So it's it's very interesting if we if we would just like take a moment and break down
1: SoFi versus Chime. Um, Branding is wildly important for both of them, but it's drastically different. Um, you talk about SoFi. The user of SoFi is someone that is typically a pretty high earner because they're in yeah. amount of student debt where they went to a good enough school to pay a lot of money for, yeah. for, to, to, um, to, to get in that type of debt. To refinance a student loan, you're very much underwriting and taking a bet on someone that you believe can pay that, that debt down. Yeah. Chime. That is very much the 80% of America that is making that doesn't have $500 in emergency savings in case of an emergency. Um, very different type of user. You have to you have to market to both of them very differently. I'm not saying that one of them needs more money to 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 market than the other, but they need wildly different strategies. That's a staggering statistic. Is that true? 80%. 80% of America doesn't have $500 in savings in case of an emergency. Very real stat. Wow. Very real stat. And so, you know, when you're talking about that, you know, one thing, there's a lot of... Ne- I'll stick on time for a second. A lot of neobanks came, you know, were founded over the last 10 years here. The majority of them are struggling, if not have already failed. It's because it's very, very hard to turn a profit on the 80% of America because of the amount of money they spend. Yeah. And because they don't have loyalty to banks. Um, they will bank at a lot of different places to to be able to... Manage their life however they need to manage it. Chime itself spends a lot of money, but they need to spend money on incentive programs within their bank. Hey, uh, if you if you sign up for an account, maybe we'll give you twenty dollars to open that account. Yeah. And they have to do that a million times over versus spending an extra twenty-five million dollars on a Super Bowl spot. Yeah. Also, we're also assuming that uh, you know people are spending a certain amount of money where they're watching the Super Bowl um, in their life. So like. Uh, again, like taking a step back, wildly important to invest in, in brand and marketing for these businesses, but the type of businesses that are being built is dependent on the end user. And, and within fintech, there's so many different types of products that are built for very specific type of earners. Yeah. And so that, that's something that I'm always thinking about of like, cool, what is the end user? What is the strategy in terms of how do we get the message in front of them in the most meaningful way at the most ideal time? I love yeah. that. Like high earners, Super Bowl, perfect place, yeah. Yeah. right? Yeah. Um,
0: I I worked. Oh, this is going way back. I worked on the launch of Webvan. Love and, it. And uh, I remember like going to like the facility and like being in this room and I'm like, oh my gosh, this is a you know, it felt like it was three stories tall. I remember getting like really chilly, and I'm like, what is this? And I'm like, oh, this is going to be the meat locker. This is where we're going to store all the meat. I'm like, what? And I stepped out, and it was like. It, couldn't believe the facility. And I said, um, so, cause we just won. I'm like, are you guys gonna share a bunch of research? Like you must have like, you looked at the marketplace, you know?'" and they're like, oh yeah, yeah, people hate shopping. And I'm like, you, you've done research to prove that? Like, oh yeah, people hate shopping. At the time I was like, my wife was going to Piedmont Grocer, she was going to Trader Joe's, she had like five. And yeah. she kind of enjoyed it. And I'm like, guys, share some data. Share some math. There was none. There was like none. I was like, I knew on day one, this was gonna be the like, I thought it was a great idea ahead of its time, but they had no data. When you are talking to your clients, talk to me about, it could be addressable market, it can be data, but isn't this all math? At the end of the day, shouldn't you be, if, if I'm web van, shouldn't I have been able to realize, okay, I'm building building this facility for a billion dollars. I'm launching in San Francisco. That doesn't make sense. Why don't, Why am I building a, a facility for distribution nationally when I, I got to get it to work in my own backyard? It just seemed like there was no mathematician. So how much of what you do feels like not only is there the, the art side, but the math? Yeah, I,
1: I, I call it science. science. Um, at the end of the day, what we do specifically within performance, it is a science. It is qualitative and quantitative data done... In a way where we measure as much as we possibly can before we cut every single time, what we realize is there's a lot of founders, there's a lot of executives, and this is unfortunate, but like everyone believes they can do marketing, yeah, everyone thinks it, regardless if they've ever done it before, they've seen the movies, they've seen the shows, they've seen enough commercials, we are all consumers ourselves, so we get inundated with a lot of marketing, yeah, so we all feel like, oh, I could do that, um but what they don't realize is is marketing is really, really smart data scientists that have the patience to measure before cutting, to make it so the cut is as precise as possible. That involves not just qualitative and quantitative research. It also involves testing, 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 iterating, iterating, testing, testing, testing. Yeah. And then where I w- the way we always think about it is building a, a, a program to where 70% of the dollars we're spending on the things that we know the 100% certainty works. 20% of the time, we're trying to beat what works with other really thoughtful experiments that we've tested prior. Then there's 10% where all we do is think about different types of uh, exploratory experiments that could potentially beat everything. But it is patience and science at the end of the day. I Think you're 100% right. It is an equation at the end of every day. And the majority of rooms that we walk into with our clients have not done the equation, or they've done some, frankly, half-assed version of it. And a lot of the times, we have to spend the first month, sometimes months, realigning the executives on what the ultimate North Star goal is and making sure that we have reshared the data that we've done to make sure there is full executive alignment on it. So when we move forward, we don't have barriers to make
0: change. I've been... This is my 13th agency. So I... I would say in my career I've heard the 70 20 10 breakdown. Yeah. I would say in my career maybe 10 client partners follow that. Which is pretty shocking, you know. And and I I was I was interviewed and someone and I was caught off guard so I kind of made up the answer. Yeah, yeah. But you know, they're like what's your hope for next year and I said my hope is that the CFO at some point next year realizes marketing is not a cost center, but a revenue center. Like my my fantasy is at some point the people are looking at the data, they are proving out the math, they are putting together the measurement plan. But I've had that same fantasy for like 10 years. Yeah. And it's still, you you know, the first thing that gets cut is marketing. And you know, if like there was math behind it, it wouldn't be cut. Because you're, you're creating these acquis or would it? No, well, it, well it's
1: interesting because um, within the world that we've lived in for the last 10 years of grow by any means necessary, specifically within tech, marketing has always been cut first. And it's unfortunate because they're not running profitable businesses. When a VC invests $100 million into the business, they say, these are the goals we need to hit. Who cares about profit? We'll worry about that when it's IPO time. Um, so the CAC numbers never work out. The equation was broken from the very beginning because we're not running a profitable business. And so a lot of times those teams are being let go because hey, now we need to run a profitable business. It's easy to blame it on the, on the, on the different groups that we told to run an unprofitable business to then blame them for the business not working out the way it needs to be worked out. And that is something that I think the market is now shifting into. It's moving away. And, and this has nothing. to This this is not me going down on brand momentum, but more so just like it was a momentum market. Yeah, momentum market meaning uh, VCs were putting money in because another VC did. Deals were moving so quickly that they weren't doing the due diligence that was actually needed to be done for some deals because they were so afraid of losing the deal, and they were saying go spend the money and grow. Yeah. Now we're in a place where people are designing their business around true business X, X and O's. Go build a profitable business. So I actually believe we're moving into a a market where because we're going to be so thoughtful about how we build out the profitability of a business, there's going to be a clean line back to why marketing and brand is so important because it's going to have a direct line to profitability versus just trying to scale an unprofitable business.
0: Let me ask you a question. There's consultants and they will specialize in one thing. Like, I'm going to specialize in this business model, and I'm just going to do it, do it, do it, do it, do it. I, if I look at my own career, have always been like an anti-specialist, meaning I feel like the more elastic and flexible the marketing muscle, the stronger it is. But I could see, oh, one business model. I understand, I understand. So here's my question. It might be naive. In a sector, is there one business model, or are there... 20 different business models even if i pick like okay i'm going to be a, a specialist in, in consumer packaged goods yeah and here's the model for how we sell secret deodorant tell me about the flavors of business models because if i if i if i had to if i had to do it all over again i would have gotten an mba and i just would have studied every kind of business model because i feel like that would have made me the smartest marketer i could be it's all business models it like is. It, if i were to sit down and and give any young person
1: guidance on like how to just be thinking about life after college i would say just go make sure you understand every single business model out there because for me it's fintech or anything i can look at like because of the amount of businesses i see a lot of deal flow that i see as a vc and also within fiat growth if i look at the business and i i can understand the business model in 10 seconds and then i'm seeing okay what the hell are they selling And then I'm saying, okay, is this a viable business? What do I think about the trend and the space that they're in? Is that something that I see trending up? Do we care? Do we not care? And everything, just like I see a commercial. Do I want that product or not? No, I don't. Like, I'm a consumer of business models as a VC, and that is my greatest superpower because um, understanding those will get you so far in just being able to enter any conversation and be smart. Yeah. And we talk about this idea, and I've been around you enough to know, like, for I'll speak for myself. There was a long time where I was an inch deep and a mile wide. I could talk a a lot about a little. Um, But once I started understanding every single business model, and I I swear I know every business model out there, it automatically dropped me down an extra five feet of just, like, knowledge. Because once you get through that, everything else aligns. You know, fintech or not, although I will say fintech is truly everywhere from the standpoint of it's in every single business model. Um, So the mixture of fintech, which is
0: understanding the business model in me, to me is just a superpower in itself. You mentioned young kids. That's a great lesson for young kids. I, when I talk to young kids, I I look at my own, you know, I I was uh, the jobs, my early jobs, I was an umpire, you know, And, and being an umpire and having that responsibility, especially when I got to high school and did a couple of college games, you got the parents yelling at you. Learned a ton of lessons. Was a cook, tons of lessons. You know, waiter, tons of lessons. Retail. I I sold fragrance at Macy's in the Herald Square. Tons of lessons. What are your thoughts nowadays? It just seems like the kids are so programmed that they're they they do not have summer jobs. Do you look back at your career? Like, did you have a summer job when you were young, and, and how did that help you?
1: Really interesting. Um, I didn't work as much
0: as I should.
1: You know, <laughs> I feel like I. <laughs> I, I very much have like an entrepreneurial mentality and I always have, but I also think that that came from me just growing up very modest household and always wanting more money. Yeah. It always came back to money for me. I just happened to be in fintech. Yeah. But I always wanted to make money. Um, It wasn't until later in my life where I realized I wanted to make money on my own terms. Uh, There were many times where I was working for people and I was like, no, this is how, this isn't how I want it to be done. I had offers from Uber when they were early. I had offers in a lot of these like companies early on, and I was like, I just don't want to do it with under this. Um and so that was very much my drive there. I think work is wildly important. I also think that access to different jobs, the barrier has lowered. Like you no longer just need yeah. to go do a paper route or sell lemonade. Yeah. Like you can literally go mow someone's lawn to like delivering pizza somewhere and you can get that job quickly. It's a yeah. gig job. I also think that how kids are playing these days and like competition in general, like some of like the quintessential, you know, infrastructure level shit that every kid should be doing. It's just shifted a lot. I grew up playing sports. I grew up playing football. I played football in elementary school, in high school. I played football in college. I played at Cal. That's how me and my co-founder met. Uh, I was playing with Marshawn Lynch and Aaron Rodgers. Like it was great. But I, I, I do believe a lot of my entrepreneurial mindset came from just like, competition and uh, yes it got up to the college level but competition and play and exposure to different people different players with different backgrounds different skin colors one of the superpowers that I've I've always been very proud of is is my ability to code switch Um, I can walk into a room with billionaires I can walk into a room uh, in East Oakland with black kids that I grew up with sitting in a room all the way to You know, a pitch where I'm asking for a couple million dollars and feel very comfortable in that space because me growing up, I had so much exposure to such a melting pot of cultures and individuals. And so, my biggest thing—it's—it's less about work, but it's more about just like exposure to different. Yeah. And and to me, that is dying quite a bit because people are so caught up in social media and like living on both physically and digitally, the feed that they enjoy the most that makes them feel the most comfortable. When like everything needs to be designed around what makes you feel uncomfortable.
0: Yeah, that's good. We both live in Oakland. I feel like, uh, I don't know, five, six years ago, like Oakland, man, the momentum was behind the city. People were talking about it. And now we've kind of, we've fallen back and, and people aren't talking about us. Or if they are, they're talking about Oakland in a bad way. And of course, sister city, San Francisco. How, how, how do our cities get their momentum back? Can you solve that for all of us, please, Drew? (laughs) Cities either came out of the pandemic winning
1: or losing. And Oakland and San Francisco came out losing. And it's really unfortunate uh, because there was so much momentum. I know. And uh, we all felt it. I also think some of it's mixed with us losing three sports teams in in the span of five years. I'm not exactly sure what the answer is. But I'll tell you, we, we definitely just need to get commerce back one of the biggest things that's really sad to see is like in, in San Francisco, we're out here in our office in San Francisco and, um, walking down the streets and just like seeing small businesses suffer is, it, it's, it's really tough. Um, because you start to realize how important that is to, to kind of keep culture up and, um, keep people engaging with newness the, the other thing specifically within San Francisco is is so much of the youth left during the pandemic. They yeah. realized they no longer had to pay rent because they weren't taking advantage of bars and that that comeback hasn't really happened yet. And no nobody really wants to say it out loud, but you know San Francisco is very much a bridge and tunnel city. you know, when people graduate college, like, I'm going to San Francisco, I'm going to the tech companies. But there's so many different things that need to change. It is a little bit above my pay grade, but it definitely makes <laughs> definitely makes me want to get in a, into into local politics at some point in my career.
0: Yeah, you'd be great. You got my vote. I um I was fortunate enough to work on the San Francisco Giants uh, doing their advertising, positioning, and branding before they'd won any World Series. And I remember like going to a game, which was then probably Pack Packel Park. Yeah. yeah. And going there, and the same announcer, I forget her name. I think it was Rochelle or something. She, you know, the team comes out on the field, and she's like, and here's your San Francisco Giants. And I'm like, that's the cornerstone of the strategy. This is this is not about the, the, the corporate guys who own this team. This is a team of the city. And at the time, the team wasn't advertising throughout the city. They weren't doing banners. They weren't in bars. And I... I'm making a prediction. I'm hoping this time next year I'm working with the San Francisco Giants again. And that we, it's its a great place to show off the city. And I think your theory about, I never thought about it. the sports teams leaving is hurting. How will AI help perhaps this city get its momentum back? And then going back to fintech, how is AI a, a tool that will fuel more momentum in fintech? I
1: think the key word is, is tool. Um I think a lot of folks um, that want a part of AI believe that everything they do needs to revolve around AI. Um, I think AI is an optimization tool for existing businesses. You talk about the city, like the amount of unstructured data within local government is insane. Yeah. To me, like AI, like if if, if I'm sitting as a city official, the first thing I'm doing is I'm saying, "Great, let me utilize AI to make it so." we can have really incredible recommendations from the data that we're staring at on a day-to-day basis. I think the same thing for fintech. Fintech has more data than anyone. Um, You talk about a bank. You talk about a money management tool. You talk about having access to our transaction history. You talk about having access to the life events in our life. Hey, I just had a kid. Someone tell me, where can I get my 529? Someone tell me, should I get more life insurance? Someone tell me, should I be... You, you know that I just had a kid. Should I be saving $2,000 extra a month instead of those four dinners that me and my wife go out to and we splurge? But there, there's such a huge opportunity for AI to optimize all different types of data and not just saying, hey, here's the structured data, look at it, but turning that those optimizations into recommendations that are meaningful to the person that's consuming that information. I just said a lot of shuns there. And the TIO, <laughs> but But I mean, yeah. I'm telling you, like, AI has the ability to structure information, provide recommendations that specifically impact the individual that needs it most, and that should be the goal, versus saying, "Hey, how do I turn my business into an AI business?"
0: Yeah, well said. Um, your business incredibly successful, both of them. Thank you. I mean, inc- I mean, if you look at your younger self, did you imagine you at this age would hell have, no? <laughs> yeah, like when 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 did you get a was it running into your co-founder? When did you get a, your first sniff that you might be onto something that? To answer your first question, no. I, I knew that at some point I, I
1: would be running my own business. I had no idea what type of business that would be. Everything within Fiat has been very organic. I'm so thankful for it because it's, uh, it's made it so I didn't have to plan that much. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, every, the next step always became very clear, um, you know, you know, before we made that decision. But Alex and I, we, again, we went to college together, and he was working at Chime. You know, we talked about Chime earlier. He was heading up growth from Series A to Series D. I was at a company at Steady, based out of Atlanta, Series C company, helping folks in the 1099 world improve their financial health. We were both sitting from a really unique vantage point. I was overseeing growth there, but we were both overseeing the creation of their marketplace. And just to break that down, Chime had around 10 million users but they had a marketplace where they would recommend different financial products that they didn't currently offer within their suite okay. to all their users. Same thing happened at, at Steady where we had around 4 million 1099 workers, all gig workers. And I was building a marketplace that recommended financial products that would help improve their financial health. Okay. We were chatting on a weekly basis, talking to 10 to 20 companies a week. And I kept calling and saying, I just spoke to a company, it's not great for our marketplace, but like we could help them. Ultimately we started, co-advising a number of companies together, started out with us just saying, hey, might just be the two of us for the, next, for the rest of our lives just having a really good consultancy. I said, hey, let's, let's hire someone. We hired someone, and then we started seeing one, we were in the middle, we didn't realize it until we really started getting into it, how much of a golden age it was for FinTech. We looked at each other and said, once we can, once we can replace our current salaries with the salaries that we're doing on the side gig, we are going to then, quit our day jobs. We did that a lot quicker than we thought. Had around 14 clients. And then from there, uh, I'll never forget it. A VC, I was getting lunch with a VC. He said, you should ask for the right to invest in these businesses. I was like, sure. I was like, I don't have any money to invest in these businesses. He's like, I don't care. If one of them turns out to be good, send them to us and I'll give you a small piece of what we invest into the business because you guys Smart. can pass over the right to invest. So I started asking every company we work with, hey, is it cool if I put a clause into our contract asking for the right to invest in your next round? And Again, this means they have to come to us before anyone else can invest. And um, sure, no one ever said no after that.
0: Holy cow. And
1: so me and Alex looked looked at each other and said, we don't have the money, but I'll tell you this, we get like 20 or 40 more of these things, we should start thinking about potentially raising our own fund because the companies we're investing in, we say no a lot more than we say yes in a lot of the clients that we work with. We only work with companies we believe are investable therefore we're curating a list of like very investable businesses. So, um, as we kept growing, kept hiring people that we wish we could have hired internally. Once upon a time we're working in house, we started hiring like really, really incredible growth marketers. And we started seeing some of these, these signs in the sand. And, um, then Marcos, our managing partner at Fiat Fiat Ventures hits us up and says, hey, I'm looking for my next gig. I was like, what do you want to do? He's like, I want to do a venture. I want to start a venture fund, but I don't have any venture experience. I was like, neither do I, but I want to start one too. (laughs) (laughs) And so and so, literally, um, he was on paternity leave, put in his two weeks right when he returned and started. And first day he walked in with a 15 page deck on the entire fund that we were going to create. And we went out and started shopping. And it was really interesting as we went out and raised a $25 million fund on a deck that said these are all the companies we have the right to inv- we have the right to invest in if we had invested the day they gave us the right to invest this is what our current returns would look like wow. on the portfolio and it was like 30x wow. it was it was crazy looking wow. and um and that's where we started our journey but ever since then the growth of the business has been organic we never took in any funding um we just kind of organically got more clients hired more people, got more clients, hired more people, and we, be- we become the premier growth consultancy in the FinTech space, and um, that mixed with ventures and the community we built around it has really become a force in FinTech, and mainly because of this idea of reverse engineering venture. Instead of us saying, we're gonna create a venture fund, we're gonna invest, and then we're gonna help these companies scale, we get to help them scale first, then invest, and then sure. continue helping them scale. Which is not a wildly innovative idea, but within the world of venture, it is very different yeah. and very disruptive.
0: Yeah, I, when I, uh, this is why I said, as I said earlier, this is my 13th agency, and at some point, and I'm gonna tie this right back to you, at some point, I'm like, at one of these agencies, I'm like, I'm gonna go out and I'm gonna you know, select clients. And at the time, I wanted to work with really nice clients. And I quickly learned that that wasn't enough because they were nice, but they didn't know what they were doing. And because they didn't know what they were doing, my agency was running around in circles. So I'm like, I need really nice clients who are really smart. Now I have to tell you, Drew, your company, it's insane. The people that I know that talk about your company, it's like with love. And, and, and I, I asked someone just the other day, I'm like, they're just so nice. And I'm like, you know what? That's not why people, like. <laughs> they're they're nice and they're really smart. <laughs> um, so congratulations on your success. No, thank I- you. Same to you. My business very much about hiring people. I will tell you my secret for hiring people and then I wanna hear your secret. So um, going back to sports, I'm super competitive. Mm-hmm. So in the interviewing process, I get down to like, are they competitive? I think the whole notion that and you hear companies like, "Oh, we're small. We want to stay small." I think just like with you and Alex, once you realize, okay, this it takes on momentum. Uh, you can't keep a great company small. So you're going to continue to grow. My company's going to continue to grow. So I look for competitive people. I look for people that are hardworking, and a lot of that goes to, um, you know, just hearing their story, hearing their upbringing. I grew up with a modest, like I, 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 my mom's poor. I give my mom money, and I money is important. And yeah. I will continue to work hard because I, I want that for, I want that money to pass on to my daughter and, and whoever I can help. Um, so I, hardworking, competitive. And then I want thoughtful people. So my, my trick question. I've hired probably, because I'm older than you, and been like thousands of people. And my trick question, and by the way, Sometimes as I've moved on my career, I'm like the last person. So everyone, oh, you're going to love Matt. You're going to love this person. And I've had so many people fail on this question. And it's like a, it's, 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 a, it's a sneaker. So I basically, at some point in the interview, it's a, it's a curveball question. I say like, you know, uh, hey, Drew, you know, you think about people that know you, people at your last job, you know, people that had seen you work for, you know, closely over the last two years, you know, what, what might be a misperception they have? And I've had people answer that question in 0.5 seconds, and I've had people answer the question like in 90 seconds, where you just see their eyes thinking. And they're like, "Hmm, misperception. Let me let me think on that." And I think the smartest people I've hired have taken, they've been on that one minute to 90. Like they because and I just want to see their eyes think. Yeah. And then I tell them like, we're going to be in a business where a client's gonna ask you a super tough question. Don't make it up. Don't say a misperception is like, I'm all work and no fun, I'm actually a fun guy. <laughs> yeah. don't, don't be that person. Yeah. So that those are the three guiding questions I've asked through my, my entire career. And I feel, and a lot of it's personality too, like I want people that come into my business that are momentum makers. They just bring something extra. Like it's a, it's a new flavor, it's a new ingredient. But those three core values are key to me. So, when yeah. you hire people, how, how do you make sure? Because it's hard, because a lot yeah. of people, they'll have those, you know, they're professional interviewees. They, it's they, tough.
1: How do you? It's very important for me to hire folks that come from very diverse backgrounds. Yeah. And I think we all know, like, networks breed networks. Yeah. Um, specifically within FinTech and AllTech, like, there's not a lot of folks that look like me. Yeah. And um, so, I'm constantly trying to think one, and just in terms of like bringing people into the fold, making sure that, I very much think about it from like the Rooney rule perspective, uh, the football term where basically like, great, you got, there's five white candidates, great. We need to get at least 30% that are not white yeah. or, or whatever it may yeah. be. Just, just to make sure that like, how we're looking at the market, we're giving everyone a, a very, very fair shake in terms of the process. But in terms of hiring folks, I very much, it's gonna sound funny. I try to hire people that aren't like me. Yeah. Um, I feel like I am, I have, there's a lot of like maverick in me in terms of like I very much want to break shit and I really like to have people around the room that tell me not to break shit. Yeah. <laughs> I need people That are going to Constantly be like Holding me back Being like yo You got to think A little bit more I talk about the measurement I talk about all the stuff That's needed to like Properly run the business That we're building I don't have a ton of it If you ask me like What are the, some of the, the Misconceptions That like I might have Is like yo It's taking me a long time To figure out What my real superpowers are I yeah. used to think I was a super I, Everything was a superpower Of mine It's not I, I have a like. Everyone has a couple things That is their superpower And the best quality people can have is knowing what their superpowers aren't. And the next step being is who are the type of people you need around you to make sure those gaps are filled. And so I'm constantly looking for people that one, um, have, uh, this like attention to detail. And I always call it this like type A mentality of, I look for perfectionists. I find a lot of joy telling people it doesn't need to be perfect because I'm, I know that I don't do anything perfect, but they're always striving for perfection. I'm looking for people that are entrepreneurial that, um, see unique opportunities that haven't been done before um, that they want to test. And I say, great, go break it. Um, Go feel uncomfortable for a second. The other one being is, I always just want to work with people that are inherently good people. Um, And that comes with humility. That comes with thoughtfulness. That comes with them just being genuinely nice. Um, If we sense any scent of asshole in anyone, I don't give a, I don't give a shit how good they are. No. Yeah. Um, because the culture and you know, like we're both, you know, this sub 100 culture that some 100 people in a company, it is such a delicate thing that needs to be nurtured. Um, that it just takes one bad egg to, to really change the shift of, of where the waves are headed and the harmoniousness of the business.
0: Yeah, I've, I've been in agencies that were a handful of people and agencies that had thousands of people. And when it's a small garden and a, and a weed appears, like the garden kind of fixes itself. Yep. It, as your company continues to grow and as my company continues to grow, grow, it's it gets challenging because I've been at companies where I'm like, wow, we're 250 people. And I think we probably have 20 people that for some reason we just look the other way. And that's... That's too high of a percentage of potential assholes.
1: It's true. In your company. It's yeah. true. Um, and obviously, the larger you get, the tougher it is to to sometimes move on from those types of personalities because yeah. eh, they, they might be on a that yeah. really big account, yeah. and for some reason, the client loves them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so you know, it's a it, it's a process. But I mean, being a founder and like once you get to that certain size, truly being a business owner and having to think about those things and make those decisions and uh, there's so many different. You know, all of a sudden, there's just a new room every quarter yeah. that opens
0: up that you have to make sure stays clean and yeah. and,
1: and has, has the proper type of vibe.
0: When I worked with SF Giants, I remember talking to Brian Sarabian and the the lead Peter McGowan. I think from Safeway was like the lead owner, and I remember just meeting the players, and I could feel it. I could feel like this, and I've been at seven agencies when they were agency of the year and you could just feel it. So then and then a lot of those agencies, like my last agency doesn't even exist anymore. And we were a national agency of the year and I was having a conversation with my wife and she's like, "Why do you think that happens?" I'm like, "It's it's a lot like sports. You 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 suddenly don't have your closer and you you lose your home run hitter, it changes the whole dynamic no. of the team. What do you what do you do to keep your good team together?" Cuz like uh, that's my question, and I'm going to share one story. I remember being very, very young in advertising, working in an agency called Kirschenbaum and Bond. Mm-hmm. And Richard Kirschenbaum, who was the one of the founders, said to me, "Is like our business is really easy. There's five of us that sit on one side of the table, and there's five of them that sit on the other side in a new business pitch, and someone has to fall in love." And I remember as a young person thinking, like, well, I don't know if it's that simple, but there is some truth to that. Yeah. Like, if there isn't that, I, I I love the way that person thinks. I love the, if they don't have that. It's not. So, how do you keep that that core? And can you? Because is is it like, because or do good players naturally get restless and want to go to a new team? It's.
1: First of all, I think that 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 statement's really interesting. Um, just real quick on in terms of our business, specifically around performance, it's more so of um, it's less about love. Yeah. Because I, I think they're falling in love with our process, and they're falling Results. in love with process. But even like the selling, right? Of just like yeah. the pitch, like they're selling in love with the process, um, and we're making them feel safe. Yeah. Um. Where I feel like a lot of times, at least with like, you know, brand agencies, um, it really is about love. Um yeah. and, and it's and it's hitting those 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 emotional chords. Um team is tough, man. I'll tell you this. I you know, I, we won the Rose Bowl one year. Um I'm sorry, we won the the Pac Ten championship in yeah. college. It was all the locker room. Like you you distill it down to what made that team the team. It was the locker room and everything that happened off the field, because we had such a connection in that locker room. We knew every single time we were walking on the field with our best friends. We were a family. Yeah. And um, and because of that, we always went the extra extra step to make sure we knew the playbook. Every single person next to you on that field, we had 100% certainty that we all knew, and we were all giving it our all. What um, position did you play? I played wide receiver. Wide receiver. In college, yeah. Oh, you're fast. I was fast. <laughs> I played quarterback in high school. I was supposed to play quarterback in college, but a uh, funny story. I got a full ride to St. Mary's college in Moraga oh, yeah. to play quarterback. They dropped the football program two weeks after I signed my letter of intent. Oh my gosh. So I called all the coaches that were like looking at me and I was like, I don't give a shit. I'll walk on like, just get me somewhere. Like um, I'd already been denied from UC Berkeley. Um, and I called Jeff Ted for the coach. And he was like, Come walk on. Just can't play quarterback. Sure, whatever, man. Two weeks later, I have a le- I have a acceptance letter to Berkeley. And no way. Walk on and play receiver. I end up earning a scholarship. Did you catch a pass from Aaron Rodgers in practice? Yeah, yeah. I mean, when I was a freshman, it was his last year. Yeah, yeah. Good dude. Did
0: you did did you? Um, I'm always fascinated when I see the wide receivers and those gloves they wear. They almost seem like they almost feel like something Spider-Man. Like they're like shine. Do the, did you wear those in college Were yes. they, they were a thing?
1: They were a thing. Um, also, I don't know if you ever worn them before, no. but I mean, literally, um, it's pretty hard to drop a pass. <laughs> oh, really? with those on. Yeah. yeah. I, I got a pair. I'll bring some into the office, yeah, man. No. You can check them out. Yeah, please do. <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: yeah just... I'll throw you the ball. You'd be like,
0: damn, <laughs> baby, I, <laughs> I you I guys should go try water. out. Yeah. <laughs>
1: uh, but, um, But no, like, you know, I would say coming out of the pandemic, we scaled up quite a bit during the pandemic and uh, the challenge and the needle threading of of building a culture and maintaining a culture when not everyone is sharing an office or more importantly, you know, call it 70 percent of the company is just like strewn across the country working from home. It's tough. It's a challenge. And um, when we're all humming it, a lot of times comes down to the digital communication that us and as, as an executive team are committing to to make so everyone knows we just closed the deal someone just did this upsell like you know we we just got ourselves out of a bind but it's just like over communication that's of, of what's going on and uh i'm part of me is glad that we scaled during the pandemic because i feel like some people are going to over time have to learn that the hard way yeah um but again like our business today it's
0: it is. It's. It's very remote. Two last questions, and no, no sort of order to to tie. We'll, well, first of all, let me back up. I'm fascinated by momentum. I believe advertising is the voice of business, so it's business momentum. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, you know, if I had a magic wand, you know, the growth marketers and the brand marketers just become one, because at the end of the day, it is all about driving the business forward. So how are you feeling about your own business and the momentum you're carrying into 2024? I'm feeling very good. That's awesome.
1: But I will say, midway through this year, with the collapse of SVB yeah. and First Republic, yeah. there, was a, there were some scary moments there. Oh, yeah. Um, one, because of uncertainty. Two, because the, the venture funding market very much fell through the floor. Yeah. And um, we were bracing ourselves um, for some really tough times. Um, There were tough decisions we had to make. Like there were some things that had to be done. Didn't hit us as hard as we thought it would, and a lot of that was just because of like the sheer grit and grind. Yeah. But we feel really good, and I'll tell you, it's. uh, I mean, we a lot of times we're just taking pages out of the out of our own book that we 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 are giving to clients. But scaling your business can happen in so many different ways. Uh, We. There's that shift you make as a really young startup to, uh, to a growing company to where it's no longer just founders trying to go find new business. Uh, it's greater than just like this one-to-one battle of, oh, I spoke to this company, I spoke to that company. One thing that we really focused on is um, channel partnerships. Finding really, really large institutions, uh, corporates that had a ton of clients directly in our space that needed our help, where they were directly Smart. benefiting from that business, getting more users or getting more clients and us coming in and saying, listen, we can help all of your clients that will that are driving you uh, revenue in a much more streamlined and efficient way. And what that has set us up for towards the end of the year is a very bright 2024 because Instead of going one-to-one, we went one-to-many with these large channel partnerships that have given us really great foundation in terms of how we drive revenue to our business and how we're able to continue adding value to all of our customers. And for Fiat Ventures, we're raising fund too, uh, yeah. which is a grind in this market. But like, we're in a really great place to, to go close that out in 2024 and feeling really positive about it.
0: Um I will tell you, I, I mean this sincerely. If if I were a early stage, late stage, about to have an IPO, and I needed a growth marketing plan, I would pick you guys. I would totally pick you guys. I think I think I think a brand right now that's trying to go out and hire someone based on their resume, and I'm going to hire this one person, and they're going to build it. I much rather outsource it to the pros. Have the pros prove the model works and then have them help me staff it. So I think you're, I think your business model is brilliant. I'm jealous of it. <laughs> <laughs> Candidly. And, yeah. I, and I, I hope we both have a great, you know, 2024. And I want to thank you, Drew. It, it The fact that you did the first one with me, we just kind of easily just talked through it and it will end up in a book. And, you know, the lessons you learn, I want to borrow from. And if I learn anything, I'll certainly share it. But, uh, I would say Fiat Growth, Fiat Ventures, really nice and really smart. So thanks, man. I really appreciate
1: that. And and one last plug here is, uh, we didn't talk about this, but I get to share an office. Yeah. (laughs) And um, I get to witness the work that Barrett Hoffer does. And um, shout out to Barrett Hoffer. You know, you guys deliver such a premium product to your customers and your team is so smart. Like you talk about hiring and recruiting really great people. I've organically gotten exposure to everyone. And uh, many times I've gone back to Alex and be like, I wish we didn't share an office, (laughs) because I'd be poaching people left and right. (laughs) 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 But uh, it's been a pleasure sharing an office and I feel like uh, you're making us smarter.
0: So I appreciate you. Thank you. Yeah. All right, here's to a great 2024.